This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. There are now only three episodes between this one and the start of WBC Connect. If you haven't already registered, what the heck are you waiting for? There's even an option for free registration. Paid registration gets you access to content that would normally cost you hundreds of dollars, perhaps thousands, depending on where you would have been traveling from. There's only one place you can get a little appetizer of WBC Connect content, and that's right here on the Master Brewers Podcast. During the next few weeks, we'll be chatting with some of my favorite e-poster session presenters. Well, what what are these compounds actually doing um, in, in beer? This week on the show, we're talking about a major hop grower who's tracking sulfur compounds and hops to dial in harvest timing, as well as biotransformation of sulfur compounds and beer. My name is Tim Wallen, and I'm an analytical chemist at Virgil Gamache Farms in Toppenish, Washington. Uh, Tim, the last trip I took before the pandemic uh, was in January out to the annual Hop Growers of America convention in Portland, where you presented a poster at the Hop Research Council. Um, Let's start there. What's Hop Technic harvest timing? Yeah, so Hop Technic uh, harvest timing, basically, I guess the lab started in 2011, from what I'm aware of, Uh, been been here for uh, a little over a year now. and so the whole the whole thing was was to improve the quality and consistency of our hops, uh, primarily the Amarillo hop, which uh, the variety is the VGX PO one. So we have a little bit of quality um, associated with the Amarillo um, brand itself. And so the harvest timing, um, basically, what we're using as a tool um, is just tracking the intensities of these aromatic sulfur compounds that pop up. Um, Desirable sulfur compounds can be things such as uh, fruity um, tropical notes or grapefruit notes. Sometimes uh, undesirable is really high levels that give you very sulfurous or like very dank onion garlic characteristics or like diesel notes. 
um, just not as clean. And so the, the whole idea is to monitor the hops. So we, we take samples um, routinely before harvest actually starts to see how fast things are maturity, maturing um, in relation to the sulfur compounds. Um, and then after doing that, um, we kind of start like assigning uh, picking windows uh, based on brewer's preferences. So uh, those picking windows are all driven by uh, traditional sensory analysis and then just monitoring the intensity of these sulfur compounds um, on our instrument. All right. Why don't you um, give us a little um, overview of sort of the the nitty gritty of how you do the sampling and, and whatnot? Yeah, so the sampling, um, so we basically have fields on different days and they're rotated. So currently this year we have two days, our bread and butter is the Amarillo hop. Um, So we've got two days committed to that. Um, Then we also have um, a day, a third day, which is all of our other varieties that aren't Amarillo. So we've got Noble varieties. um, We've got... um, some Tardif, Salea. Um, we've started playing around with this hop called Wartenberg. Um, doing a lot of cashmere as well now. Um, things like that. And then we also have, uh, we're monitoring our auxiliary growers. So we've got growers from Oregon and Idaho who are also um, doing some varieties for us, mainly uh, the Amarillo. And so what we're doing is uh, we're just rotating through those, um, taking samples every day of the week. Um, so we've got interns going out in trucks, picking out this uh, hops in the field. So um, when we've got cones budding that are big enough to pick and to start doing the analysis on in the fields, um, they'll take, you know, a uh, hundred grams roughly and get an even distribution of the fields. So they go in like four poles in, um, into the fields and then try to get a good distribution of those hop fields as good as we can from that small sample. And then from those, those are dried overnight where we do a traditional, um, dry matter analysis just to see it's a good indicator of how quickly the hops are maturing or uh, where they are at peak maturity. Um, and then, so some of that dried sample then we'll use, we'll just put in a blender with water, do a water extraction, uh, filter that out. And then we've got these sorptive, uh, twister stir bars. that will stir, um, that absorb those aromatic compounds. And then we put those on our, um, instrument to be analyzed. And so we're doing sample prep and sample picking, um, and also just rub, traditional rub and sniff like every day of the week, um, and harvest based until it's done when you're field sampling wet cones um you just described how you're drying them down but do you how do you um how do you get that process to be representative of what's gonna be typical in your in your commercial kiln cycle Right. So that's going to be a little bit different. Um, You know, uh, I'm still learning a little bit and pieces of the process, but basically, so we usually kiln at around 145. Uh, We have these oven dehydrators, which you can use for like jerky or fruit and stuff like that. Just keeps a constant dry temperature. And so we run those at 145 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, The actual time um, on the 
And we use the temperature because um, just to try to get as representative of close in aroma as we can on that smaller scale system than what's actually being kilned. Um, you have so many other factors on a larger scale with kilns, so you can't you can't get there perfectly. Um, but basically, we dry them down. Um, completely and so that takes a little bit longer than the traditional uh kilning sure. on that scale to get all the water out so we're really just monitoring dry matter um using that method you're not going to get like get into the like standard percent moisture that we usually shoot for on the kilns so there there's a little variation there okay um Traditionally, with a kiln, you're, you know, for our Amarillo, we're looking at like 7 or 8% percent moisture, I believe. So, All right. Makes sense. Uh, Tim, I know all this is fairly new, so you may not have tons of data yet. And obviously, you don't have data for the current harvest, which is probably just about to get very busy. Uh, but let's hear about what you observed throughout the 2019 harvest. Yeah, so 29, actually, so I, we have some data right now for 2020. Um, we, we started sampling last week on the 12th for hop fields. Um, we haven't started picking yet. We're, we're probably shooting for starting our major pick dates um, next week. We actually just started picking our Wartenberg today. It's pretty early. That's a pretty early hop. Um, for us, but so with 2019, uh, from what I understand from other people that have worked here is it was pretty consistent with 2018. So things kind of started really peaking up in maturity in Washington. And we started picking around like the 26th of August for Amarillo. Um, you know, just, just lots of, lots of good heat. Um, you know, Idaho and Oregon have slightly different pick times. Um, Idaho, usually they start, picking their Amarillo a little bit earlier um, just because they're different variations in climate. Um, so far this year, it looks like Idaho and Oregon are going to be starting earlier than we are um, actually monitoring the intensities of these aromatic compounds. Uh, we've noticed that this year, just because of overall, we think cooler temps, even though in August, it looks like we've had some more sustained period of heat waves um this august from last year um it looks like the the aromas are a little bit delayed right now um you know we're starting to see see some things on our instrument and in, in sensory right now um but it's like like five to ten ten ish days behind uh kind of where it was uh last year um, but the other interesting um, thing is, is even though we're tracking this, I mean, there's not like a exponential, like linear scale of like how these aromatic compounds pop up. Like what I noticed last year is you're not seeing anything for a week, not seeing anything for a week. And then boom, like you see sulfur compounds on the instrument and mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're, they're starting to get ready. Um, and then once they start getting ready, you know, um, then things start moving pretty quickly in the plants, it seems. Okay. Um, talk a little bit more um, about sort of that, um, what it looks like if you compare sort of what you would classify as a, as a early um, harvest versus mid versus, you know, late. 
Yeah, so it um, it uh, during the 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 stages um, so far at least Amarillo we have the most data on and we've dialed in that variety the most. So when we pick Amarillo, um, you have an early window, you have a mid window, you have a mid late lit window, and that just means in terms of relative to how intense those peaks are. So yes, we do see um, as the Amarillo sits in the field that those intensities do increase over time. Um, so some of these peaks that we've sulfur compounds we've identified um, are like tropical fruit nodes and um, they're really nice pleasant things like that but we see t- more towards the later season later part of the season when they're picked um, you're getting more dank nodes a lot more more diesel character uh, more onion garlic things like that yep. um, and some some brewers really like that but also some brewers really prefer um like less catty and just like clean grapefruit citrus pine um, from their Amarillo. So a lot, a lot of times that's Bruce uh, preference. Right. Amarillo, we have these windows that we've assigned because we've, we've based this on like a collection of experience and data. Um, other varieties are a little bit different. Like we don't really have the same picking windows. Um, right. I think that that also is just due to the nature of Amarillo. Like Amarillo, it's got a whole spectrum of like intensity of flavors you can really play with. Um, you know, we've done like, for example, a little bit of Citra um, and we're starting to do some cashmere now. Um, some of those hop varieties, like what you're really shooting for, like Citra, like, you know, there's that classic Citra character. And to me, it's more like an on and off switch. It's either you hit that trop- wonderful tropical note or it gets too late and it's just super dank and um, not, not really desirable. All right. So, and so you're seeing you're seeing that essentially that window um, varies in size by variety considerably, right? Yeah, and I mean the thing is, is right. You're you're tracking this like you know one harvest season a year. So yeah. you know you only have so many for so many years. You only have so many time points. So I mean that's kind of the frustrating um, thing. You know, being a, a scientist trying to track this stuff and understand it is you've you've only got like a few shots shots at it but so far we've we've really um understand amarillo a lot better and to get that consistency a lot better okay so moving on to your poster for wbc connect which is right around the corner you've also been studying biotransformation in beer give us the rundown on what you've been up to yeah, so I mean, I guess you know, uh, I don't know. I, I really got into interested in hop science and all that stuff. Just my years of home brewing before I even um, got into this industry, and so uh, it kind of started off with. So we were using um, these chromatograms that we're seeing of sulfur compound intensities to look at harvest. Um, but before I got here, like this, what those compounds actually are on the um, chromatogram. They hadn't actually um, identified them. So they're they're just looking at raw intensity. And so, um, you know, one of the projects I started working on was was like, well, let's let's actually identify these compounds. What are they? And I mean, a lot of a lot of these compounds with other analytical instruments and other research groups across the um, the world have really really done a lot of work, like Nicias and Sonia Collins and people like that. 
have really established some of those compounds. But so for our instrument, we're able to identify where we're seeing like like MMP or the famous one for like tropical and black kern and caddy notes that everybody's familiar with. And then things like methyl thiohexanoate, which gives a passion fruit guava or grapefruit character. Um, and then like 3MH, 3MHA, um, some of these other mercaptans. And so once I actually started identifying those, then, um, you know, I kind of, kind of was interested is like, well, what, what are these compounds actually doing, um, in, in beer? And so, um, basically with this, just wanted to take some basic single hopped wart trials, just really basic, uh, golden light malt, um, doing a small bench shop scale extract brew, where you're just taking time points about every day, just to see, um, tracking these, uh, uh, intensity of these compounds. Um, and so just tried it with different hop varieties. So our Amarillo, uh, cashmere, we also compared the sots we grow in Idaho, um, to Czech sots as well. And then we just, with the, uh, Amarillo, we tried a variety of yeast strains. So we just did a clean, I did a clean USO five American ale, uh, German lager strain, um, Belgian Saison strain. And then from white labs, we reached out to them and they gave me their, uh, Trois rye strain there 648 and just did a primary brett fermentation um to see how that would impact things and uh it was it's pretty interesting um the really the only the compound of the thiols that consistently saw through all wart and that's the one i decided to try to kind of loosely track um quantitatively and this is all preliminary pretty preliminary stuff um but just tracking uh form mp like the starting fermentation uh starting concentration of that in the wart and then pitching yeast and then tracking that over fermentation and kind of seeing what the pattern was less styles being volatized and you're actually observing the increase of uh, production of styles at that point. I'm John Bryce and you're listening to the Master Brewers podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweetbread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. 
Additional support provided by Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. As you might imagine, there still aren't any opportunities to gather in person for district meetings, but that doesn't slow us down. After all, Master Brewers, which was formed in 1887, has survived more than one pandemic. Spring and summer have brought us numerous webinars and virtual district meetings, many of which can be replayed on demand. You've heard me talking about the 2020 World Brewing Congress for several months now. As I've mentioned, it's my favorite industry conference. I've been looking forward to it since the 2016 WBC ended. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we won't be able to gather in Minneapolis as planned. As much as that stinks, there is a pretty serious silver lining. WBC 2020 is going fully virtual, which means you can access the world's most cutting-edge research in brewing science and technology easily and affordably from the comfort of your own home. Registration for WBC Connect is now open, with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details, or check the direct link in the show notes. You've probably heard of or even attended one of the famous two-week courses that Master Brewers puts on each year in Madison. Well, those classes will be all virtual this year, which means you can now get the same education without spending money to travel and while taking advantage of 45% off course tuition. The Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins October 11th, and the Brewing and Malting Science course starts October 25th. The Master Brewers podcast working group still needs representation from a few more districts. Look for details in the Master Brewers communicator or go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group. Now back to the show. Okay, so um, I, I, I don't think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we talked about how how and when you added the hops. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was just doing stuff on the, the stovetop here. So I just got like a little conduction hot plate and was doing two liters of warp. Um, based on, you know, some of the research <laughs> that I kind of saw from like, Shellhammer's lab at Oregon State and some other people with just like, you know, when do you get um, maximum um, extraction of these uh, um, compounds on like the hot side? And so I tried to um, just... Uh, I would boil the wort and to try and control it as much as I could, I'd let it um, drop to 195 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Um, and then I would add a uh, charge of like 10 grams of hops and just do like a 30 minute steep on the stovetop um, and let that go. And then, and then I would after 30 minutes. So yes, the, the temperature um, of that, um, wort is dropping during that period of time and then just chilling that uh, as quickly as I could in an ice bath and then pitching the yeast um, after that. All right. Any particular reason you chose the varieties that you chose other than, I mean, obviously Amarillo is your you know, most important variety, but um, any comments on why you selected some of the other varieties for this experiment? Yeah. So, um, one of the reasons, so we started doing cashmere, um, you know, like last year and that's just been such a dynamic hop. I was really interested to see if 
there would be some significant differences between that and Amarillo. Um, actually, in terms of like alpha acid range and um, retention of form MP, I found that it was kind of performing similarly to, to Amarillo in a way, um, at least with that peak. Um, and then the Idagrown... Idaho grown sots. Um, we're really interested in that one. So kind of, um, so the, uh, it's, 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 we grow the, the sots in Idaho. So it's a little bit different than the Czech sots. And because of that Idaho character, you get these fruitier, um, compounds. Uh, I also wanted to do, so we had a few American grown varieties and then I wanted to do the, uh, like a noble variety just to see if there's, um, a difference there. All right, let's get into your results. Your poster shows the various peaks on the chromatograms. So listeners are going to want to go get registered for WBC, WBC connect so they can view your poster, but let's hear some takeaways. What did you find? And was there anything that came as a surprise? Yeah. So, I mean, there's some things that I, uh, were really fun. Um, so the one thing that I guess was kind of a surprise or I, that the unhopped wart, uh, just the blank, it had a substantial peak, uh, before fermentation, which just completely, um, got eliminated, which was, uh, what I'm referring to as mercaptan acetate. So there's two different compounds, uh, found in hops and I, I guess malt as well, uh, three mercaptive four methyl penyl acetate and then three mercaptive hexyl acetate. Um, they have the same molecular mass. So they're the same size compound. They're just arranged differently, slightly different structure arrangement. Um, so they're both kind of falling out there, but so I noticed that in the unhopped wort, um, substantially, um, and that, that just completely disappeared, wasn't retained. So that was interesting. Um, the fact that the form MP, um, just kind of, uh, dropped off linearly, um, makes sense. I mean, these styles, you know, you've got vigorous fermentation, they're readily volatized, they're easy, easily oxidized, they just aren't very stable. Um, so you would expect them to fall off. Um, surprising results, um, I'll, uh, before I get into the Brennomyces fermentation, um, but like the lager and Saison strain, I noticed like kind of after 10 days, and that could have been something to do with um, instrument, um, drift or something to do with the, the stir bars or just extracting more compounds at times. So it need to run replicates, but I did, did see some spikes of intensity of form MP all of a sudden with the lager and Saison strain. I really want to repeat that and like, see why that was. I mean, maybe, maybe there is some more enzymatic activity there. Um, also, which I didn't really have space, um, or wordage to really put in that poster, but you like filled it up pretty good. Yeah. The, <laughs> the lager and Saison chromatograms, uh, I saw, um, prevalence of like sulfur peaks during fermentation. You weren't seeing with the USO five clean ale yeast, which makes sense to me. Um, we know lager strains can produce some sulfur notes as well as, um, some of those, um, what kind of. Um, rebellious Belgian strains, but now the um, the ferment, primary fermentation with Brandomyces um, I thought was was pretty interesting. So 
all the other fermentation profiles, they, they just kind of dropped off linearly in the first three days um, and then just kind of hit a baseline for most of the time. Uh, with that Brendamyces fermentation, uh, the second and like third day after I um, pitched the yeast, like I actually saw a huge increase in intensity of like form MP. Um, I was like, that's very interesting. Um, and then also you monitor the, the Brett fermentation, uh, one, it, the, the stability of the thiols just overall seemed like they were, they were hanging around a lot longer. Um, there's a chromatogram where I show like on the poster, um, many days into the fermentation when like things are already at a very low intensity and abundance of that form of P for like regular Saccharomyces fermentations, uh, the bread and Myces chromatograms still have the retention of all these different sulfur and thiol peaks. Um, and so that I thought was really cool. Um, just my experience as a, a homebrewer and reading research, I mean, there's a lot of more exogenous uh, enzyme activity um, with Brettanomyces, um, certain certain strains of it. But also just uh, as a homebrewer, I just always noticed that there's just a different like dynamic um, character to those beers that it seemed like there was some fruit character and stuff that seemed to just have more longevity um, than a normal ale fermentation. And it could be the enzymatic activity and also just Brett being an oxygen scavenging microbe as well. Um, so it was pretty, pretty interesting to see some like data that actually kind of like, um, maybe might start kind of confirming that kind of that hunch that you notice if you've ever played around with Brett fermentations. Makes sense. That's cool. Um, did you want to talk about the hopped cashmere word before yeast pitching at all? Figure four. Yeah. So with cashmere, um, I pretty pretty similar chromatogram to to amarillo, um, but then there's there's some other peaks uh, that you just you didn't see there um, in in the amarillo that we haven't. Some of those ones that I saw in um, peak intensity were a lot like for instance there's this 10 10 point uh 10.6 minute peak uh we don't that you're in strong amounts you're seeing it in cashmere not seeing it in amarillo that's one of the peaks we haven't identified yet um so i was kind of wondering what that was um you know Amarillo, you usually get this like really floral citrus grapefruit orange, some tropical fruit notes, cashmere. Um, a lot of times, I've got, people have described this hop to be all kinds of things. I mean, it's got kind of a little back end woody character, but then you also get um, watermelon or people have said rhubarb, red berry. I've also had, heard people come in and say orange dreamsicle. And I can totally see that with this hop as well. Um, just, just some very interesting dynamic qualities. You know, it was interesting to see the differences between the Idaho sots and the Czech sots. That's the same genetics, so same variety, but different place. Uh, so in this case, the differences are really all about variability in soil, climate, and farming practices, right? Yeah, and so one of the cool things about that, so the um, 
the Idaho grown sots has kind of like, I get a floral citrus orange out of it. Um, some people have also noticed like a balsamic cherry note, but it's got a little bit of form MP and then a huge peak. The biggest peak that comes in is that methyl, methyl thiohexanoate, which is your like kind of like potentially grapefruit or passion fruit. Um, and you know that that's a pretty interesting hop actually um so apparently um dan carey of new glarus kind of helped um kind of um give give a little pointers with kind of dialing dialing in that hop i'm from what i'm aware of like back when virgil gamash started doing this basically the whole idea with targeting that hop was we don't want this to be a replicate of check sots right um we want this to be its own thing like an american a fruity american variety but it's it's a noble variety and you know before i started working here um you know i didn't know that there's a difference i didn't know there was u.s available as a homebrewer. Now that I know about it, I, I'm really interested. I would love to see um, some more brewers kind of work with that hop. Um, I would love to see it side by side between like a Czech Pilsner with Czech Sots versus U.S. Sots just to see see how that impacts the beer. Yeah, the folks who used it as a substitute when they couldn't get Czech Sots probably um, were pretty surprised by the results. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, you know, I really like the um, uh, the charts where you showed intensity of 4MMP over time during fermentation. There was also a, a bump in most of those lines around two or three days. What's that? Not entirely sure. Um, you know, now, now that you mentioned that, that, that is a good question. I'll have to have to investigate that and a little further and see if that's a consistent behavior. Um, it definitely looks like you're seeing that in, in three, at least three fermentation profiles for yeah. sure. Yeah. Maybe, um, more, yeah. you know, that's, that's the thing is, you know, there, there is the possibility that um, you're breaking. So thiols are bound to different amino acid um, conjugates. That's, that's when they're, they're the bound thiol states. So there is, definitely the possibility that these thiols are being released during fermentation, but at the same time, like, because you have an active fermentation, some of them are the free ones are getting volatized and just removing from the beer. So, so it's possible at that point, um, you know, I would hypothesize that um, you're actually seeing maybe at that point there's less thiols being volatized and you're actually observing the increase of uh, production of thiols at that point. In beer, we're obviously not laser focused on just 4-MMP. There's a concert of various thiols and other compounds creating flavor, which is the type of thing that makes brewing so complicated and interesting. So there's lots more to study. What do you want to next? Yeah, so um, you know, we would we want to identify more of these styles. Uh, we can do total, you know, we can do terpene analysis breakdown and t total hop oils. Um, the thing about terpenes is really like that's also super tricky. Like people feel like you know we've got that completely locked down, or we've got that more locked down than thiols because they're in higher concentrations in the hops. But again, like fifty to eighty percent of your terpenes is going to be like myrcene, and you've got all these other uh, terpenes in there, 
And we have a list of them through standards that we can identify, you know, uh, 20, 30 of them, but there's still a lot of potentially unidentified terpenes as well in really small concentrations. Um, so wondering what those are um, is interesting. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in, you know, potentially just, just like an off flavor check during like, you know, the pelting and process, uh, processing check is there's some oxygenated lipid products that get created during this whole process that can create, um, off flavors as well. So I don't remember the name of the compound off the top of my head, but, um, there is an oxygenated lipid that in high concentrations is kind of what gives mam in mammalian, uh, blood, uh, systems like that characteristic like copper penny note um, but it also shows up in hops and you know there there's been some research papers in the past of people um, documenting this in and out analyze that but I would be you know interested to see okay tracking the concentration of um, you know that compound through you know different um, you know different places where uh, you know, the whole hop and then different checkpoints, like, you know, uh, various pellet mills, you know, seeing kind of seeing the prevalence of that and also seeing if it's like variety dependent. Um, one of the million dollar questions we, you know, you would love to do is what's the actual concentration of bound thiols versus free thiols? And then how many of those bound thiols are actually being released? And could you measure that? And I don't yeah. even know if we have the uh, instrumentation capability um, in this day and age right now. Like, I feel like almost, you know, we're on, I guess, technically we're on the cutting edge of things, but you realize, oh, this, this stuff's really difficult. And it feels like now you, you kind of hit a wall where you feel like you're, you're using caveman tools to <laughs> solve a very complex problem. And I mean, that's, you know, uh, you know, I always think with, with science and, you know, looking at biochemical systems, it's just like, you know, all the easy stuff's already been done. Okay, as part of the WBC Connect e-poster sessions, registered attendees will have the ability to post questions to presenters as well as live chat hours. Tim, it looks like your session is on September 19th. I'll post a link in the show notes to everybody listening who is currently yelling out loud, John, why didn't you ask Tim about this or that? We'll have their very own opportunity to do so. So um, can look forward to that. <laughs> That was Tim Wallen here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Check the show notes for a link to Tim's WBC Connect e-poster session. Look, I know you're probably zoomed out and totally sick of virtual this and virtual that. I know I am. But WBC Connect is not just another virtual conference. This is a meeting that I usually drop everything for because it's the most serious international gathering of technical brain power in our industry and it only happens once every four years. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you're crazy not to attend at least part of this. Registration for WBC Connect is now open with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details or check the direct link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. 
So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Thank you.